As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm John McKenzie, but I'm not joined as I always am by my good friend and producer Mike Zimmerman. Well, 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 look who we've got here. It's only <laughs> Joe Devine. Hi, John McElgenzi. How's it going? I'm doing very well. Yeah, no, so I've heard. I haven't actually listened to any of the episodes. They seem very boring, but uh, I'm glad that you're enjoying doing it. <laughs> it's a bit like, uh, you know, if you've got a sort of little nephew or whatever and you want to give it work experience, that's what we've done with you. And I think it's going just great, young man. Yes, I do think it's going well too, Joe. And it is continuing to go well in this episode because I have another fantastic guest for our listeners today. In Jaleel Tabagre, who is the proprietor of the Purist Football YouTube channel, we're talking all about Barcelona and the tactics of Barcelona under Xavi Hernandez. Do you think that sounds exciting, Joe? Yeah, that does sound exciting, John. It does. I can't wait to listen to that one. But do you know what else I can't wait to listen to? I can't wait to find out who you can't wait to listen to. Well, it's not a who, John. It's more of a... Oh, it is a who, I suppose. It's me telling you <laughs> about the TIFO book. Now, do you remember the TIFO book, How to Watch Football, released last year? Huge bestseller, John. I believe so, yes. Yeah. Well, all I, I'm here to remind people that, uh, you know, for some of our listeners um, who, you know, supporters of certain religions, uh, it's Christmas soon, isn't it? You know, a holiday of consumerism where we all buy each other things that we don't need. Well, if you'd like to break that tradition, then maybe you should get how to watch football, TIFO's guide to watching football. It doesn't, I mean, it actually is quite small. It could fit in a stocking, depending on how big your stocking is, or slide under someone's door, or, you know, pop it in their uh, their bank vault, or, uh, you know, well, hide clogs. it under, cook the it in Dutch, a pie. The Dutch leave clogs outside their front door, don't they? Would there it fit in pop, a clog? It, 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 the clogs would make a terrific sound on it, because it's a hardback, of course, you mm. know? I keep mine in the bathroom, so every time I go for a poo-poo, I get to read another rule about football. It's just it's just a whole sort of, um, it's a whole mess really in there. But it's great. The book's fantastic. So please, if you're thinking of someone who uh, enjoys football and you'd like to treasure them this Christmas, then go, go get the book. You can get it from on the internet and in shops probably, uh, but, uh, you know go and get it because that would be good and listen to the rest of this podcast with John McElgen Z and Jaleel Tapper-Gray from The Purest Football now that's enough of that nonsense let's get into the episode
Barcelona are one of the most famous clubs in world football, made popular by names such as Lionel Messi, Andres Iniesta, Xavi Hernandez and Pep Guardiola. They are one of the first names to be mentioned in the conversation about the greatest teams in world football. More recently, though, they have fallen on trickier times, most prominently off the field. Having to walk the tightrope of La Liga's squad cost limit, the club have handed the management reins over to one of their playing legends, Xavi. It's been three seasons since he joined, and the journey has had ups and downs. But is the trajectory upwards? Well, we're fortunate to be joined by someone who is able to help us get a handle on the situation at Barcelona. Jaleel Tabagray is a content creator who runs the excellent YouTube channel The Purist Football, which covers Barcelona's tactics alongside a host of other videos exploring the tactics of different clubs from around the world. Jaleel, it's great to have you in the studio today. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm a huge fan of uh, what you guys do on the podcast and, of course, on YouTube as well. So, yeah. Yeah, and I'm a huge fan of what it is that you do as well, which is why you're sitting here today. But uh, today we are going to talk mainly about Barcelona. We're going to talk, I think, in three sections. So what we're going to do is we're going to take Xavi Hernandez, who's the current manager of Barcelona, and divide the whole episode into three different sections based around each season that he's been at the club so we'll start off with his first season uh, what happened last season and then moving on to talk about the things that have happened this season as well so let's start off with a little bit more of a contextual question because I wanted to ask you to what extent the conversation around Barcelona particularly from a tactical point of view still finds itself situated in the question of what Pep Guardiola brought to Barcelona yeah I think to a pretty great extent to be honest with you um, obviously, that comes partly from the fans because of the just the success of that era, the playing style, how it was kind of appreciated all over the world, but also from inside the club as well, because you have to remember that it was Joan Laporta who appointed Pep Guardiola in 2008, and it's now Joan Laporta back as the Barcelona president now. Um, and actually, in his presidential campaign, he was the kind of the one um, spinning the narrative about returning to former glory, obviously referencing that Guardiola era um, specifically. So, you know, with, with that in mind, it's kind of impossible to separate those two eras. They're spearheaded by the same person, the same president. He's brought back a, a, a manager who was a player under Guardiola. So those, those two eras are pretty inextricably linked, I would say. And I think on top of that is the fact that that famous Barcelona team had such longevity, really. I mean, Pep Guardiola left a long time ago, uh, but those players were still around. I mean, Sergio Busquets and Jordi Alba only just left. So presumably that has had an impact on the ideas that people think about Barcelona tactically. Yeah, for sure. And Gerard Piquet, another one. You know, I think it's uh, it's pretty clear that there's a, you know, there's a pining for Barcelona to get back to that sort of success but through the direct means of that era because you know there is a clear through line not just in terms of players but in terms of philosophy from Cruyff to Guardiola to Xavi it's been passed down sort of hand to hand um, yeah and it's yeah undoubtedly the case yeah that, that sort of idea of a hierarchy I find quite interesting you know passing on the tradition of as you say starting with Cruyff and, and going onwards do you think that that tradition holds Barcelona back in any way is it the case that it means that they're almost hamstrung into trying to play that Barcelona way yeah it's an interesting question I'd say you know does it limit them tactically probably yes because as a manager coming into Barcelona you can't just do whatever you want you know there is a, a, an understanding of a sort of tactical philosophy in place um, you know you, you look back to Ernesto Valverde who was top of the league when he was sacked by Barcelona which seems pretty unfathomable uh, but it's because there is such a demand to play a specific style of football and, and follow that sort of through line. And, um, you know, so yes, I would say it's limiting, 
you can't just come in and do whatever you want. Is that necessarily a bad thing? I'm not sure it is. I think there's actually benefits to having that kind of uh, foundation in terms of the tactics. It can help with recruitment. It can help with, uh, you know, the academy. It can help with uh, continuing a sort of consistent um, level of or a consistent performance across eras. If you're not bringing a manager in and expecting them to, you know, start from square one, you've got something to, to build on essentially. So limiting, yes, but I think it can have its benefits as well. We, I don't want to talk too much about the current financial situation at, at Barcelona because it's one very complicated and, and two uh, not not everyone's cup of tea to talk about these things mine, anyway. But not mine. There's clearly been an impact um, in terms of what Barcelona are able to do in terms of recruitment, and I suppose the the big question we're going to be talking about today is mainly about the the evolution that's happened under Xavi's time as as the manager. Do you think that the the financial aspect is necessarily going to change the expectations of what Barcelona look like tactically, given that they are in this scenario now, which means that they can't just buy the players they need all the time? Yeah, it definitely should, but I'm not sure that it is having that, to be honest. I think fans are still very demanding, and it's a club that, you know, if you look at the media um, pressure that is on Xavi and his players, it, it, it doesn't seem to relent based on the fact that, you know, this summer they only spent 3.5 million or whatever it was, so... Um, yeah, realistically, it should change expectations, but it, it really isn't. There's also the case that, you know, you Barca are still able to bring in good quality players based on the fact that they are Barcelona. So they've had pretty good free transfers, you know, um, Ilkay Gundogan and uh, Joao Cancelo and Joao Felix, the latter two are on loan, of course. But, you know, there is still quality there. They still have the quality from La Masia. So it's not a case of there being a, a lack of quality, but in terms of being able to build the squad where they want in the areas that they would like to, they're definitely limited. And do you think the the way that the backroom staff look at squad building is still very much in that sort of 4 3 3 perfect model um do you think that's the the blueprint that they say well all we need to do is get a new Messi, get a new busquets get a new xavi and in iniesta and everything will fall into place i think probably that comes more from the fans than it comes from inside the club i would say i you know xavi himself has changed although he's stuck to some principles he has changed the game model a little bit um we're going to go on to talk about the first iteration of his team but you know that was a team in which the the two sense midfielders were very advanced um, there wasn't a player of Xavi's profile, for example, in that team. So as times move on and, and the game changes and you need different profiles of players, I think, you know, the coaching staff understand that you're going to need different players now than you needed 10 years ago. And so that that probably comes more from the fans, I'd say, than, than from the coaching. I think it's also interesting talking about the fact that the manager himself now is one of the players from that famous Barca iteration when when Guardiola was there how important do you think that that is for the various agents that we're talking about here in in so far as how important is that for Xavi himself how important is it for the club how important is it for the fan base that that he is the person who has now been tasked with embodying this this new Barcelona way yeah I think you know it goes back to what I just said about sort of the presidential impact here you know Joan Laporta has has built this project as a restoration of Barca's glory, not necessarily as an embarking on something entirely new. So the fact that they have that direct descendant in there, Xavi, who probably represented that style of football really more than any other player, the fact that he's now sort of the head of the sporting project, I think, is, is very significant. It must be said, though, that, you know, Xavi was 28 years old when, Barcelona, when uh, Guardiola became head coach of Barcelona. So he'd already had a pretty significant career before then. 
he played under Louis van Gaal. He played under Frank Rijkaard. Um, he'd won titles, but he'd also, you know, come under a lot of criticism. And he was at the club when it was actually probably at its worst point since now, really, the, the era just before Guardiola, uh, where the club was basically on the verge of bankruptcy again um, and were struggling to maintain their, their place in the top two or three in Spain. So he has come through that era as well. So from that perspective, he's actually very well placed to guide Barcelona through this current era because he is not just seeing things through the prism of glory. He's actually got a wider perspective. And he does talk about that when the current team, when the current players are criticised, he can then, you know, refer back to his own uh, time of being criticised and, and, you know, has the perseverance to actually guide the team through this difficult period. I'm asking you to speculate here, but do you get any sense of of how Xavi views the Pep Guardiola era? Does he does he talk about that in terms of what his expectations for how the team should be playing are? He doesn't really talk about that. No, I think he considers himself his own manager, as he should, you know rightly should. Uh, it's not something that really was spoken about when he first joined. Obviously, the media was speaking about that, but Xavi himself, I think would like to keep things pretty separate in terms of this is now my era. And the reality is that the the style of football has changed since then. Pep Guardiola's style of football has changed since then. And, and the evolution of football has dictated that the team has to be quite different. And so I don't think there's a real need or or expectation from, from Xavi to recreate what was, what was done 10 years ago. So... It seems to me that the time has flown past incredibly quickly because it feels as though Xavi has only just joined Barcelona, but it is, as we've said, his third season at the club, although he did only join in November after Ronald Koeman was sacked in 2021, I think around yeah November. Um, what did you make when you heard that Xavi was being made the manager of Barcelona? Well, I was pretty excited. As a Barcelona fan, as somebody who loved that team, I was excited to see what he would do. You know, would he be able to restore some sense of Barcelona identity, which certainly had been lost in the Valverde and Coman eras. Um, and I think, you know, the the expectation was that he would really restore the, the true version of, uh, we keep talking about sort of Cruyff's vision, but it's impossible to escape from it, the true version of that. And... You know, he has in some ways and he hasn't in other ways, but certainly there was great optimism when he was appointed, yeah. What did you make of his start at Barcelona? It was mixed in terms of results, definitely. In terms of the league, there was a, a massive uh, surge in performance after Coman's uh, exit, and they climbed from ninth to second place in the league. Uh, the Champions League, there was, again, a bit of faltering there um, in terms of uh, the last couple of games that Xavi inherited and, and uh, didn't manage to qualify out of the group. However, I think the most promising thing from the beginning was that it was very clear, it seemed very clear what he was trying to do. The identity of the team became very clear very quickly. There was a very obvious structure, obvious positional structure, the patterns, the movement, there was, you know, it was it was repetitive. You could see the symmetry in the team. And so it felt immediately like a, a strong footballing identity, which I think had been missing during the, the Valverde and Coman eras, like I just said, which felt like they were, certainly Coman felt like he was trying to replicate what he had learned from Cruyff. Obviously, he, he also played under Cruyff. Um, but this felt like the real version, or at least something that looked like the real version from a bird's eye view.
Let's talk a little bit about the team that Xavi inherited from Ronald Koeman because I think it makes sense that he might try and adopt that that blueprint of of Cruyffian football or Guardiola football from the off because there's a lot of players in that team who were playing in in that famous team. So these are the players with more than a thousand minutes in the league that season. So this is Xavi's first season. So Sergio Busquets gets the most minutes. Um, we've got Marc-Andre Stegen, then Jordi Alba. Uh, we've got Gerard Piquet in that team as well. Um, uh, Usman Dembele as well, Danny Alves. These are all players who've, you know, they've played for a long time at the club and have had those values instilled in them. How much do you think that that season was about sticking with the same sort of classic 4-3-3 ideas simply because those players were available? And how much do you think it was because Xavi sort of felt that he had to play that way? There probably was a little bit of pressure. However, it is worth saying that he did tweak that classic 4-3-3 a little bit. Like I said, the midfielders, for example, the centre midfielders were a lot more advanced. They were doing a lot more running in behind, sort of underlapping runs for the wingers. Um, the, the roles of the fullbacks were different. So Dani Alves wasn't playing as an overlapping fullback. He was playing more as an inverted one, really, uh, alongside Busquets. And even Alba on the other side was a little bit more reserved. So there was the space for the attacking midfielders to, to underlap. So there were, you know, obvious similarities. The, the 4-3-3 was there, but there were tweaks that Xavi was making. I suppose ones that brought it more in line with what other teams, other positional teams were doing in, the, in that time, you know, in the modern era. Um, what also changed was the, or what also impacted that was the the constant squad changes. So that January, there was the introduction of Abamyang, of Ferran Torres, Adama Traore, and those players also changed the way that, that that team functioned. Ferran Torres played on the left wing and wasn't a proper winger, so that changed the dynamic on that side again. So immediately there was a sense of adaptation. It wasn't straight away just, you know, let's go back to 4-3-3. What certainly helped him was the fact that those players were there, the skeleton, Busquets, uh, PK, Albert, Stegen. They formed the skeleton of the team and then the adaptations could be made sort of around them. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about adaptation because it seems to me as though that's been a, a sort of theme that has run throughout Xabi's time at Barcelona. What, what have you made of him in, in those terms? Because he is definitely a coach who's changed his system every season so far. Exactly. And that is really, in, from my perspective, is down to the changes of the squad. It's essentially every season, every half season, really, because changes have been made in January as well. Xavi has had to adapt. He's had to, you know, uh, respond to not just changes in the squad, but how he's viewed his own players as well. There's been players who have taken on different roles throughout the, the Xavi tenure now. Frankie de Jong, probably the biggest example. Gavi as well. So... It, it has been a constant um, uh, exercise in adaptation. And I think that's also part of the reason why it's now difficult to look at Barcelona and pinpoint their exact identity or structure or, or whatever, because there just has been so many changes through injury as well as, as, as squad changes as well. Yeah, I wonder if you think that there's any sort of negative connotation to the way that, that adaptation has been so important for, for Xabi and... I'm, I'm only saying this because sometimes I get the impression that he tries a new structure until it doesn't work anymore and then tries something else and he's almost trying to use the structure as the as the solution rather than thinking about maybe the best way of fitting players into that structure. I don't know if you think that that's necessarily a fair critique or not. I know what you mean and it, I suppose that has been the case really because you know that initial 4-3-3 or I prefer to call it really 2-3-5 in possession mm. that that was used until it stopped working, which was against when they started coming up against five at the back systems. 
and then he switched to the three at the back, which we're going to talk about a little bit more. And then, you know, that sort of come under some, some that's had some issues as well. And now it feels like he's changing again. So it's a fair, it's a fair critique. However, I do think the specifically the injuries at key moments in the past couple of seasons have have necessitated uh, a, a structural change, regardless of what Xavi really wants to do. Um, you know, one of the one of the big problems that Barcelona have had post Dani Alves is the lack of a right back. So Koundé has been, you know, essentially the only option, the only reliable option since Sergio Roberto has fallen off a little bit um and so you know you have to make a structural change based on that and that's you know one of the reasons why bus started playing more of a three uh box three and i guess again i'm asking you to throw your mind back to that time so maybe this isn't very fresh there but like at this point at the end of that first season would you say that you thought the signs were positive going forward in terms of shabby uh, and had you noticed any like potential weaknesses maybe in in the way that he approached games I think generally it was it was promising. I think Barcelona, had, especially in the second half of that season, or the second half of Xavi's first season, um, put together some really good performances. I remember the performances against Real Madrid, for example, great performances against Valencia, against Atletico Madrid, where Barca were scoring four or five goals um, and really came unstuck in the Europa League. That was the biggest dis- disappointment of that season against Eintracht Frankfurt who played, it wasn't a low block, but it was a very aggressive five at the back mid block. And that was the first time that that system felt like it was coming unstuck. I suppose really it's kind of predictable that a possession-based, you know, Juego de Posición system is going to come unstuck against, you know, deep defences, five at the backs, and have some troubles on the counter-attack. Those are kind of the classic issues that those systems tend to have. So if you were going to, you know, pinpoint weaknesses you would say those were the weaknesses and I suppose that's what it's those two things that then informed the 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 changes that we saw in the second season Mm. well let's move on to that second season now because the story of the second season was the introduction of that box midfield which I think by my reckoning we saw as early as August 2022 but I don't think it became a feature until after the Classico loss in October obviously Classico losses are a really good (laughs) chance for for a team to reinvent themselves but I'm interested in what you thought about the the necessity behind that box midfield, what that was. Um, and I'm interested to, to hear again, uh, touching on what I said before about Xabi in terms of thinking in terms of structures, whether or not he wanted to use that structure because of the upsides that it offered tactically versus the fact that it also solved a problem because it allowed him to get four very good midfielders into his team. Yeah, essentially it's both of those things. Tactically, Xabi is a manager that likes to adapt to the opponent. So when he started come up, coming up against five at the back systems, specifically 5-3-2, there were a couple of important games in that second season against 5-3-2s, against Inter Milan in the Champions League group stage and against Atletico Madrid in the league. And Xavi liked the uh, box midfield against those systems because you had three defenders against two centre forwards and you had four midfielders against three midfielders. So it just gave you numerical advantages in, in both of those phases. So it was definitely a tactical choice based on that. Um, however, it did also make sense in terms of the profiles of players that he had. So specifically, Frankie de Jong was a player that needed to be accommodated because he was just so good, but he wasn't comfortable in the more advanced midfield role, just making underlapping runs and whatever. 
So a role needed to be created for him that put him in the build-up, which is where he's his most comfortable and also most effective. So a double pivot made sense. Um, that also helped Busquets because in transition he'd start to become a little bit suspect because of the lack of legs, essentially. Um, it also made sense in terms of the left-backs that Barcelona had, very attacking left-backs who could essentially become left-wingers. Then Barca lacks left-wingers, so you had those guys coming inside, the likes of Ansu Fati and uh, Ferran Torres and even Gabi. Uh, and then, like I said about the right-backs, you know, the lack of right-back meant that it made more sense to just play three at the back with Koundé as a right centre-back. Those uh, solutions also helped defensively, which I think we're going to touch on in a bit. But essentially, it just made a lot of sense based on the profiles to, to create that system. And of course, it allowed you to get Busquets, Frankie Dion, Gabi and Pedri all in the starting lineup, which was probably the most important reason of all. So just to clarify for the listeners, when we're talking about this box midfield shape, essentially what happens is um, usually Balde as the left back pushes forward uh, and that allows the, the wide player on that side who was, I think Gabby was, was started out there, comes inside. Um, you then have um, Frankie de Jong who's dropping a little bit, can move into the fullback space as you've said. Um, you then have your two interiors as, as Gabby and, and Pedri uh, and then you've got Sergio Busquets alongside Fra Frankie de Jong as well. Let's talk about each one of those different roles because you did a, a, a very good video um, I think looking at um, looking at those different roles in uh, in order. So that video is called How Barcelona Are Building a Midfield Dynasty again. Um, yeah, let's talk, let's talk through the four corners of the box. So we'll start with Sergio Busquets um, you've talked about how Frankie De Jong is is going to be is going to be benefited by playing in build-up phases, uh, and Sergio Busquets is going to be benefited by having Frankie De Jong next to him um, in defensive situations. Was there never any scenario where Frankie De Jong could have been used as the pivot player? Was that was that experimented with? It has been, and it's been a massive discussion within the Barcelona fan base because that was the idea. I think when Frankie De Jong was signed, that he would play that role. The reality has become that. Essentially, he is a player that really likes to interpret the game. He wants to, he's a ball to feet player. He wants to come close to the ball. And the freedom that you want to give him in possession means that you don't want him as a pivot because you want your pivot to be very, very positionally disciplined, um, both for possession reasons and for, you know, transition reasons. Um, so it just doesn't make sense to pin Frankie De Jong down to that pivot position. There's also a question whether he's good enough of a ball winner to actually play that role anyway. Um, but purely in terms of maximizing him, I think it makes sense to put him in a more flexible role. Uh, Busquets was essentially the perfect midfield pivot. Mm -hmm. um, if Barcelona could design a pivot, if Cruyff could design a pivot, he would make it Busquets, who is essentially Pep Guardiola's positioning and reading of the game, um, plus uh, an a incredible ball winner as well. So. Um, there's no question that Busquets was sort of the heartbeat of that team. And, you know, the lack of a really real quality positional pivot now is one of Barcelona's big problems, actually. So from that sixth position, then, what you're wanting is the ability, as you said, to be fine in all defensive phases. Uh, but also you are, you're working as a pivot. And by, what, by that, what we mean is someone who can, uh, someone who, around whom the, the build-up can, can pivot, can, can, can orbit. Um, how much of, of that comes down to his technical ability as well? Um, because obviously, I mean, 
everyone knows Sergio Busquets incredible technical uh, player but in terms of what he's expected to do in build up uh, how much of license is he given to receive the ball uh, and turn and, and play progressive passes is that is that part of the remit of the six in that system yeah 100% and it's it's one of the things that made Busquets stand out because he wasn't just a player who could play the short 5 yard pass and keep things ticking when necessary he could you know get his head up and make a and switch the play and uh, unlock the space and that is not necessarily what the six has to do, but the fact that he could do that on top of being a very neat and tidy pivot player was what really set him apart in possession. Mm. And I guess then moving to the Frankie de Jong position, uh, I can't remember what you called it in that video. Controller. Controller. Um, you're getting a, a certain amount of upside in build-up as well, because when you've got someone like Busquets who can play almost like a pinning pivot role, what we mean by that is sitting in between, in, in amongst the opposition block uh, and, and can sort of pull, the, pull them around and, and maybe help for with central uh, progression of the ball. You've also got someone like Frankie de Jong who likes to drift into that wider area and can produce solutions and build up in, in that kind of area as well. Exactly. And actually, it's worth saying at this point that that box midfield was only really used strictly against the five-at-the-back systems. So Barcelona still played a version of 4-3-3 in most games. However, that dynamic was retained regardless. So Frankie de Jong was still dropping back. If it was more of a 4-3-3, he was essentially occupying a left-back position. So the left-back would still play as the winger and the wing would still come inside. Um, but regardless, he did have that extra degree of freedom. So he could drop into the back line. You know, if it was a two at the back, he could form a back three. Um, so, and his ability to just pick the ball up and break lines individually through dribbles um, is again part of the reason you want to give him that freedom because you don't want your pivot you know dribbling through lines of pressure with Frankie de Jong doing it there's there's more of a liberty because he has a bus gets there to protect him essentially um, the interesting um, consequence of that dynamic was that Barcelona became very left-leaning so a lot of the build-up happened on the left-hand side because Frankie de Jong or sometimes Pedri was in that controller position and that's kind of why I call it the controller position because they were the hub essentially um, and it created that sort of overload on the left to isolate on the right dynamic that became so synonymous with Xavi's mm -hmm. second season at Barcelona. Then we have the left winger in that position and I think a lot of people were very surprised when we started seeing Gavi uh, as the player who played in, in that role but can you talk us through why he was well suited to that? Yeah I mean he's very very technically adept so when you're playing in the half space, there's not a lot of space. Uh, so he was you know, very good at turning his marker, just very good at receiving in tight spaces. Um, positionally, he's, he's very smart. He understands when to uh, run forward to make space for a pocket of space, for example, Lewandowski dropping in, or you know, he would also rotate with Frankie de Jong. So again, an extra degree of de Jong, an extra degree of freedom for de Jong, um, knowing that Gabi could rotate backwards. Um, the the real benefit of having Gabi in that team was actually his out of possession work though because he is so incredibly um, potent not just in the press but especially in the counter press. Whenever Barcelona's a ball, he is just there in an instant. His his acceleration across short distances is incredible, um, and he's a really good ball winner actually. So accommodating him was probably as much for that as anything else. It helped him that Ferran Torres and Ansu Fati were, were out of form essentially. Um, the problem for Gabi in that role and why he's no longer there that often is because his output, his offensive output, just wasn't that great. His his final pass, his ability to to you know pick a, a pass basically was um, not that great. Not a prolific goal scorer either. So 
uh, a player more akin to a forward was probably required there, which is the route that Barcelona have gone down now. Yeah, and then the other interior, we've got Pedri. Was there any suggestion that Pedri could play that, that wide left position and come inside? Did he do it? Yeah, he did do it. He did it against Athletic Bilbao in one of Barca's best performances of that season. Um, I think it was changed just because Pedri is more versatile than Gabi, essentially. So playing as the right interior, because of the uh, left-leaning nature of the team, the left side got involved a lot more. And the the specific skill set that that right interior needed to have was um, it was a little bit different because they were working in more isolation. Uh, and Pedri, as the, probably the best technical player in Barcelona, um, also both-footed, made more sense for him to play as the right interior than, than Gabi. So it was more so about accommodating Gabi than it was that's Pedri's best position. I think, to be honest, if Pedri were to play anywhere in this team, it would probably be in that De Jong role as a controller. But because Pedri's just so versatile and talented, you know, he's just filling gaps wherever needed, essentially. Has that tended to be what's happened in that system that he's played in whichever role is is free at yeah, any point? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, he, because his skill set is so varied, he, he can play deep and play the final, fa- final pass from deep. He can get in between the lines and combine. He can dribble past players. He, he's just... He's just so good that, you know, he's he's filling in wherever, yeah. So let's talk about the right interior role then. Um, you've already mentioned that because Pedri is both-footed, it improves his ability to find angles in the, in that space. But you've already talked as well about the, the overloading on the left-hand side, meaning that he's operating in a little bit more space. Presumably, uh, that has a defensive uh, aspect as well. As in, is there a sense in which he was so suitable for that role because... Um, not only is he going to be operating in in more spent space from a from an attacking point of view, so you might have to uh, you might have to have a very specific p- profile of player to do that, but also he's covering effectively one half of the pitch. Yeah, in in those defensive transitional moments. In in transition, yeah. Although typically it was it was the right interior that would become one of the front two in the in the press. So um, he didn't have he wasn't playing as a sense midfielder in in, in sort of a block. Um, that was that was more down to the other players. So it kind of afforded him less running sometimes mm-hmm. as well, which was quite useful because Pedri, uh, athletically, obviously he's played a lot of games in his career already, but sometimes he, he can get a bit leggy. So I think that was a role that suited him uh, off the ball as well. You mentioned that he pressed into the front line of the or pressed into the front line when when Barca were out of possession. Did that not mean that there was often a lot of space in that right? half space yeah so what happened was it became a diamond essentially so the uh, right winger which was Dembele became the right side of that diamond and then uh, Pedri and Lewandowski would be the two up front um, you would have uh, Gavi behind them and then De Jong and Busquets so um, that, that that was the case against most four of the back systems anyway this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Well, let's move on to talk about the the overall view of uh, that we have of that box midfield. And so, in terms of the in possession benefits, we've talked on I talked about the individual aspects, but overall, what would you say the in possession benefit of that box midfield was and the impact it had for Barcelona? I'd say the biggest benefit <clears throat> is that it allows for greater control. I think it's quite a difficult shape to press that three-two because you've got to commit three forwards and two advanced midfielders. So it puts a lot of pressure on a single pivot in that in that situation. So it's very easy, as we've seen Man City do quite often, if you're rotating players in and out of that 3-2 shape, it's really hard to press. So it gave Barca an extra degree of control, which was, I think, really important. Um, I do think offensively it came with some problems. I think because you had a left-back who was perennially a left-winger and a left-winger who was now playing just in the half-space, there was less room for rotation, so it became a little bit more static. Um, however, I think the the control that it gave, especially against um, you know those five at the back systems, was was probably justifiable. And again, the fact that you could get all of those players in the team was really important. Pedri especially because that right interior role basically became a number ten role, and Barca were struggling to break down teams through the middle, so that just had a, a massive impact. Last season, Barca's defensive numbers were remarkable, and uh, you know a lot of the narratives last season were focused around how is it that Barcelona are so good uh, out of possession. They had the lowest expected goals against, and they overperformed that number to the tune of about thirteen or fourteen goals, which is incredible. They only conceded, I think, twenty goals in the league across the whole season, uh, which was thirteen fewer than the next closest team. So, a lot of the success of last season, because obviously this team won the title, was built around that defensive success how much of that defensive prowess do you think was the result of the advantages posed by the structures that they used in possession Uh, I think probably there were two major uh, benefits really the first was the use of Jules Koundé as the right back slash right centre back Um, and the second was the use of Frankie de Jong next to Busquets as a uh, double pivot in to, to help protect Barca in transition scenarios so those those things really, like like I said earlier, sort of the classic problem is the counter-attack when you're a heavy possession-based team. Busquets were struggling to cover those spaces, so having Dion next to him was very helpful. But also just the nature of playing three centre-backs. I mean, we've seen Pep Guardiola do it more and more now as well. And in the marginal moments, in the in the 
in the big games, it often comes down to individual duels, whether that's in possession or in counter-attack scenarios. So just being able to have three centre-backs who are both very good in transition and also great box defenders, Kunde, Araujo and Christensen, um, it's just made it just made Barcelona a very solid unit that season. It also helped that Gabi was very often in the team, absolute monster out of possession. Sergio Busquets, his loss this season is being massively exposed because of the defensive frailty that Barca are having. He's an excellent ball winner, so just having him to win those duels, whether it's a second wave of pressure or, again, in that block. Um, yeah, uh, it was just a very solid unit, and to Stegen obviously performed incredibly as well, which is part of that uh, XG against Sovel performance. You made a video towards the end of last season titled How Xavi Changed Barcelona's Identity. Uh, you obviously looking at Xavi's evolution during his time at the club. He talks a lot in that video about how Xavi had moved Barcelona towards a more vertical style to suit the players at his disposal. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, I think Xavi as a coach, I mean, if you look at Xavi as the player, he was the player in that team who changed the tempo. He changed the dynamic. He changed the short passes into the big crossfield passes and was looking for the, the, the vertical passes over the top. And... You can see that reflected in his his management, in his coaching style. I think there's a there's a Cruyff uh, quote where he says, sort of, uh, look for the furthest pass, and if the furthest pass is on, play it. Which is something you wouldn't expect Cruyff to say, but you know, if if you can make that direct vertical pass into space into a player that's open, then there's no reason not to. Mm-hmm. And that is reflected in Xavi's version of positional play, definitely. There is, though, of course, the element of adapting to the players that he had. Um, he potentially didn't feel that he had the players to necessarily control games in the way that himself and Busquets and Iniesta did. Um, that's possibly debatable, but I do think just his philosophy as a manager leans towards the uh, let's exploit space as quickly as possible, essentially. Yeah, it's interesting because what we're talking about here now is we're talking about the concepts of space and time, right? We're talking about with positional play, a lot of the emphasis is on how you use space uh, to create weaknesses in opponent structures to create space for yourself to then exploit. But we're also talking about tempo and, and time and how changes of tempo can, can produce those same effects as well. How do you think... This, this is a question I've sprung upon you. Uh, this isn't in the running order, but uh, you've, you've just prompted it from some of the things you've been saying. But how would you um, correlate those two concepts of space and time in particularly Xabi's uh, approach to tactics? Do you think that he maybe does tend more towards the temporal aspects than the spatial aspects? Or is that just me uh, imposing? I think from what I've seen, he has he puts more... As a manager, he has more control over the spatial aspects. The structure of Barcelona under Xavi has always been incredibly clear. So the you know the positioning and the structure you can you can pretty much see that throughout all phases of a game. The the when, as Pep Guardiola likes to say, um, the when is very much up to the players. That's what it seems to me. I think. You know, a coach like Deserbi, for example, takes a lot of control over the when. It's triggered by opposition pressure. That's why they stop um, and stand still and wait. For Xavi's Barcelona, it really feels like the, the when is dictated by the players. And that's why, for me, the team changes quite drastically depending on who's on the pitch. So a player like Pedri, who has, as they say in Spanish, that sort of pausa, is a player that comes on and makes Barca a lot more composed. 
and there's less verticality in the team when he's on the pitch because he's dictating the when and the when is a bit later in Pedri's case um, whereas players who you know when he had inj- injury problems last season the players coming in who were like you know Sergio Roberto and Frank Kessie and even Gabby a little bit less in control of that pouser and um, you know we saw a more vertical version of Barcelona also because of the tendencies of the centre-backs as well so that's something that some fans criticise about Xavi that they want to see him take more control of that aspect to potentially give Barcelona a more consistent uh, feeling of control throughout games. But it's a fine line because when you're dealing with quality players, you want their quality to come to the fore. And if you restrict them too much and start dictating the when, then, you know, potentially run into problems. But that's a that's a pretty big conversation. <laughs> I'm so pleased that you mentioned Roberto De Zerbi. Uh, you've obviously been thinking about him a lot because you've just made a video on him, uh, which people should go and check. It's known that Pep Guardiola has been influenced by that Deserbian approach. And I think that has manifested itself particularly in ideas about changing tempo in build-up. Um, do you think you've seen similar things happening with Xavi? Do you think he's been influenced by that that more Deserbian way of saying, hold on, as you said, you can control the when a little bit more. You can't. You don't need to just rely on the players for that. Yeah, I think probably every positional play coach out there has been to some degree influenced by De Zerbi because the the, his, the traditional way to, to move the opposition in positional play is by moving the ball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Cruyff again talks a lot about constantly moving the ball. It should always be moving, both the ball and the players. And that's how you create space and disrupt. Obviously, with the success of Deserbi's complete opposite philosophy of actually stop the ball, mm-hmm. I think it's been very difficult to ignore. And I think the success of that has probably changed the game quite a lot. Yeah, I would yeah. say so. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, we're, we're going off on a rabbit hole here, but I think <laughs> a big part of Man City's ability to come back at the end of last season was based around ideas that, that Pep picked up from Deserbi. But as I said, that is a, a rabbit hole. Um, go, and, go and check Jaleel's video out on Roberto Deserbi. Um, one more question with respect to last season. You've mentioned a lot when you're talking about that need for maybe more direct vertical football being the, the, the players that he had uh, available to him. Um, I guess the, the big question that is always on my mind with, with ma- when it comes to managers and, and, and determining whether or not they're good is whether they manage to get more or less out of players that, than they maybe should do, which is a very open-ended question, often very uh, subjective. But do you think that Xabi could have done more with the players that he, he had? Is he, is he too reliant on the structure to get things out of the players? Could, could you have seen a, 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 maybe a parallel universe where he, he actually coached the p- players into, into being better players? You know, I think it's, it's a very difficult question. I would say that overall, based on the context of that second season, I think winning the league was a fair reflection of, of that where that team was at. And then, you know, they won the Super Cup, they won the league, but they, they struggled in the Champions League and, and struggled in the Cup. So I think that was a fair reflection of the talent of that squad. You also have to take into consideration things like injuries. During the, the really big um, moments of that season, those games against Inter Milan, against Bayern Munich in the Champions League, um, you know, the, the second leg against Real Madrid in the Cup, uh, in which they lost, there were serious injuries. The squad was down to its bare bones. And the replacements for the real quality, I would say, were not up to the same level by 
you know, by a long distance, actually. So I think when we're judging, you know, Xavi's ability to coach players and get the most out of them, it's really difficult to judge because of how much that team and the dynamic of the team changed due to the constant chopping and changing, really. Bit of a wishy-washy answer, but... No, and as I, I highlighted in the question, you know, it's a, it's a difficult question precisely because the temptation is always to assume that a coach is good and therefore they have good players and vice versa if they're not doing well you could, it's always easy to blame the players but there is that there is that uh, dynamism between those two positions which is sometimes the players look better because the, the coach is able to get more out of them but let's move on to talk about the the, the final season um, I say the final season Xavi is still the coach of, of Barcelona and uh, long may that continue I'm sure it will um, but this, that, that is this season now so Coming into the new season, you made a video predicting a positional play problem for Barcelona. What was that problem? So it just felt to me as though a lot of those clear principles and structures that we'd seen from Xavi's first iteration had been lost to a degree, which definitely made sense because of the changes to the squad, specifically the loss of the likes of Busquets and Alba and Piquet, um, who were obviously... Uh, had been coached by Guardiola and by Luis Enrique. You even had the likes of Ferran Torres and Eric Garcia who'd been coached at Manchester City. Mm. So you had a strong core of guys who understood what that was all about. Then you had, you know, guys like Christensen come in, Koundé, uh, Rafinha. Uh, that obviously disrupted the the sort of uh, trajectory um, and forced Javi to start again when it came when it comes to teaching positional play because you know it's made to look very easy but it's a very very difficult model of football to coach and so there were essentially elements or there were moments in games where players were moving and it wasn't synchronized Frankie de Jong like I said he, he moves a lot if he's going to move players need to move around him to preserve those triangles those third man patterns and it just felt like a lot of the, the clarity was lost, essentially. And so it was the job of, of Xavi this season to, to try and regain that, which has, again, been hamstrung by yet more injuries to key players. Mm. And that video was shortly followed up by another video saying that uh, Barca had gone a long way towards fixing those problems in the transfer market with the introduction of two lone players in particular, the, the Joao's, Cancelo and Felix. Um, so how did they offer solutions to the problems that you'd seen? Uh, it was just about really the ability to replicate the the structure that Xavi had imposed in that first season. You know, Cancelo could play the role that Dani Alves had been playing and Felix could play the role that Ferran Torres had been playing well and then tailed off, which was, you know, the sort of start on the touchline, but then you drift inside, leaving space to overlap. So it felt as though these players allowed Xavi to return to the the 2-3-5, as I called it, which was so successful in that first season and replicate those dynamics somewhat. They hadn't been able to, of course, because they had no right back to do the, the Danny Alves role. Um, so that's what it felt like. But, uh, you know, since then, different problems have, have come up, essentially. Mm. Let's talk about the, the difference then between that box midfield that we talked about from the previous season and then moving back to that 2-3-5. I know you've said that structurally they're very similar and it's to do with personnel, but what has it looked like this season? Why is it? Why do we not talk about the box midfield in quite the same way as we did last season? Well, I think, you know, the introduction of Cancelo has posed some tactical questions for Xavi. He doesn't really know yet how and where he wants to play him. Um, because of the, the changing between the two at the back and the three at the back, sometimes Cancelo is playing as an inverting fullback, 
Sometimes he's playing as an overlapping fullback. Sometimes he's playing as a winger. Sometimes he's playing as a left winger. So there's been um, questions over personnel, essentially. The structure changes game to game, um, and it's trying to accomplish the same things that it did in that first season. But because there's been uh, so much inconsistency in players, it's just very difficult to get a grasp on um, or it's very difficult to build relationships that make that structure look like it's working as intended. Mm. So the downside, the downside of a lot of this has been that the uh, defensive numbers have dropped. You've talked a little bit about why that was the case in terms of personnel changes. Um, but this notwithstanding, Barca did go into the first Clasico of the season with no losses to their name. Uh, I think there was maybe three draws at that point. But interestingly, we saw Xabi change things up a little bit tactically in that game using something closer to a, a sort of 4-2-4 four, four shape, which moves into a 3-2-5 uh, in possession um, with, with one of the fullbacks pushing forward um, and, uh, the, the again, the outside player moving inside. Um, and for most of the game, it worked pretty well um, in the Classico anyway. Obviously, in the end, Jude Bellingham, Jude Bellingham. Uh, but there is an argument to be made that Barcelona were a little bit unlucky to lose that game. What did you make of that game and particularly the structure that they used in it? Yeah, well, that 4-2-4 shape is one that Xavi tends to use against the more aggressive pressure, um, sort of, again, in that Deserbian mould because it allows you to uh, maintain the double pivot. You can play the third-man passes on both sides of the pitch between pivot and defenders, and also it gives you the option for those two forwards to drop deep and then exploit the space in behind with the wingers. So um, it's a shape that he's used you know, quite often against those high presses. Uh, Madrid were unusually aggressive in that game, which is why I assume that he deployed that. Um, and generally, it, it it worked pretty well, especially when it shifted back to that 3-2-5 shape. Uh, the control that we talked about uh, was there, certainly. Um, and it really was a case of uh, not taking chances, which is always the you know <laughs> the biggest the pr- biggest problem in football. If you don't take your chances, then you know no level of tactics can can bail you out. Mm-hmm. So. That was um, a promising first-half performance, again, considering the fact that Barca were down to bare bones in terms of players. You know, We've got the likes of Fermin Lopez, who nobody had even heard of before this season, now starting in a Clasico at 20 years old, which is, seems ridiculous, but you know, it's a, it's a very small squad, and players like that are having to be relied on, um, despite the fact that you know, there's, there's serious talent um, in, in the first team. We saw the same sort of structure actually in the following game against Sociedad, um, maybe to a, a bit of a lesser effect. But I, I did think that in that game Sociedad pressed pretty high up the field as well. Do you think that's just in the inevitable structure that Xabi is always going to use in those kind of games? Or I, I'd say so. Yeah, I think at the moment, and and you could say this is a criticism of Xabi, but I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, he's a coach that is playing things by the book, if you like. So I mentioned that he likes to change structure depending on the opponent and the the structural changes he makes are quite consistent depending on the opposition shape and approach. So if you're playing a five at the back, uh, we play three, two, five. If you're playing a four at the back, we play two, three, five. If you're gonna high press us, it's a four, two, four. So, you know, he's got that sort of playbook that he likes to take from. Um, The uh, effectiveness of it is obviously dependent on the players that you have. And I think one of the issues bars have against the high press is their lack of real space exploiters, if you like, especially since the loss of Osman Dembele. They're relying on Lamine Yamal, who's 16 years old. Joao Felix is, is not... Uh, he's not particularly good at, at exploiting space and big distances. You know, he's not particularly 
quick. Um, you know, you've also got Rafinha, who's not that great in those kind of situations. So, you know, you can press Barcelona now and, and not have to worry about the likes of a Dembele, you know, killing you in, in space. So it's, it's, again, another squad issue. Do you think there's a downside to having a manager who is predictable based on the way that you structure yourself for play? I know that Marcelo Bielsa is another example of someone who played man-to-man with with plus or minus advantages back and front, respectively. Um, And obviously, if you do that, you know know exactly how he's going to come out. Do you think that you get downsides from... 100%. And that's why I think another reason that fans are frustrated that he doesn't take more control of, you know, certain patterns or, or tempo because he's putting it into the hands of the players. And what makes Barcelona unpredictable is the decisions of the players then. So that's why they become so reliant on the likes of Pedri and De Jong, because the opponent knows the structure. What makes it unpredictable is how the players interpret it. That's obviously a criticism you can make of the coach for sure, if you want a coach that has their hands in everything like that. Um, You could make the argument that you want to give the players the extra freedom because it you know, it allows them to maximise their ability. But for sure, for some, Xavi is too predictable. And, you know, the lack of automated patterns that he adds to that predictable structure is, is for some, a big issue, yeah. What are the sorts of teams that you think have caused his Barcelona the most problems? Well, I'd say over the course of all three seasons, certainly the, the deep defences, the, the low blocks, the five at the backs... So much of Xavi's uh, philosophy is about exploiting space through movement. So, you know, the classic rotation out wide where the winger comes inside or makes a dummy run and then that leaves space for the uh, an overlapping fullback. Um, that doesn't work against five at the back because they've, they've, they've got the whole width of the pitch covered. So, you know, that has certainly posed the most problems. And again, he's been reliant on individual quality again this is not necessarily a criticism but he has been reliant on individual quality to break those defensive structures yeah and look it's easy to criticize managers for being bad at breaking down low blocks exactly. but everyone does namely exactly. the manager who's breezes through these these low blocks it's uh, the reality of being an elite football coach that if you're hitting the levels that you should be hitting then teams are just going to fall into those low blocks because it's the best way of, of causing problems. So um, far be it from me to say that, that, that that's a, an overall uh, problem in the long run. But we've now got those three seasons to base our takes on Xavi as a coach, and you've obviously watched in great detail. So I'm really interested to see how, looking back from the vantage point uh, that we're in right now, how you would assess his time at, at Barcelona. I think you have to say overall it's been positive. I think a league victory a league title is is as much as you can expect um you can't expect this project to be competing in europe yet based purely on the financial constraints obviously we've talked a lot about the tactics in this podcast but you can't forget about the turmoil that's going on off the pitch as well and xavi as a man manager as a leader as somebody who's been able to really pull this project in the same direction and withstand what is really relentless pressure from the media and the fans. You know, they uh, obviously Xavi's going to say this, but he he does say that he thinks Barcelona is the most difficult place to work on the planet because of not just the the pressure from, for example, the Madrid-based media, but the Barcelona-based media as well. So you know, taking all of that into account, not just what we're seeing on the pitch, I think he's doing a great job. And this next period now, where players are coming back from injury and he has the full 
talents available to him, which are considerable. I think these next, I don't know, six months or so are going to be very telling and very crucial for Xavi as a coach. We've not really talked much about Madrid. You've just mentioned them there, but what impact do you think it has of being in this sort of duopoly that you're almost dependent on how the other is performing in order to, to get your, your upside down? How, how would you say that Xavi has fared on those terms? I think everything is sort of based on your performance relative to Real Madrid, yeah, really, sure. as a Barcelona manager. And um, it's interesting because Xavi is one of those guys who wants to play down that rivalry. He, he often talks about, you know, being respectful and, and, you know, not everybody in the Barcelona media sees it that way. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, he and Ancelotti have had some really interesting tactical battles, actually, over these past three seasons. And um, I think, you know, they're constantly adapting to each other. So it's been an interesting um, duopoly, as you call it. Although this season, to be fair, Atletico Madrid look quite good. So, you know, they're far from out of the title race. And of course, Girona, everybody's yeah. favourites. So, yeah, I think typically things are viewed in that lens of Barcelona versus Madrid. But um, I think, you know, this season, it, that's that's probably not the case. So in the next six months, you said... That's the, the important uh, moment in which we'll judge Xavi. The, what do you think that six months is going to look like from a tactical point of view? Are there, do you expect it to be more of the same or do you think that we'll see again another structural evolution that we've not necessarily anticipated at this point? I think uh, another evolution is possible because he's going to have all of his best players back and it's a, it's a very difficult decision in how you fit them all into the same team. The previous four that you had included players that could play in all of those four roles, like we said, a pivot, a controller, and two interiors. But now Barcelona's best four midfielders are Frankie de Jong, Gabi, Pedri, and Gundogan, and none of those players are really a pivot. So Xavi's going to have to come up with a system that, that integrates all of them, probably, or he's going to have to make some pretty big decisions to, to leave a player out. And I think one of the problems that he's had probably over these past three seasons, which is something that we've been talking about throughout this whole podcast, is that he's been unable to create a consistent starting eleven. That's something that I look at any successful project other than Manchester City. <laughs> and the common denominator is that they're able to choose a consistent eleven, and they know the, the roles and they're, they're able to build relationships. Whether those relationships will be able to build now, be built now is, is for me Xavi's big test and finding a, a structure and a system and a way of playing that allows those relationships to be built is, is yeah, I think the, the, the next big challenge. And it's going to be fascinating to see how that uh, unfolds as time goes on. But Jaleel, I could have talked to you for much longer. I probably could have talked to you about a lot of other topics as well. You are putting stuff out on the Purest Football channel on YouTube. So uh, our listeners, if they want to find out more, they can go and check that. You are at the Purest underscore on Twitter or the artist formerly known as Twitter. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to push at this point? Uh, no, the YouTube channel is where all the content is going. Um, that recent video on Deserbi is one that I put a lot of time and effort into. So if you can check that one out, that's uh, yeah, that's my my baby. But other than that, yeah, uh, check out the YouTube channel and keep pushing out content. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? 
we've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.